If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 12 in your Bibles. First Corinthians twelve. A couple weeks ago, I was at a Cubs game, and I had really sweet seats. They were outfield box, and I went with my brother-in-law, and man, they were like. 20 rows from the field, you can look right down the first base line, see the batter perfectly, you could see the pitcher perfectly. It was awesome. However, there was a man who sat about 10 rows in front of us who, in the middle of the game, thought he would just stand up and enjoy the beauties of Wrigley Field. So he stood up, the game's going on, And he just starts looking around. He takes pictures. Meanwhile, five rows back, no one can see what's happening. No one sees what's happening in the game. And so one person got agitated and said, hey, sit down. And just totally totally oblivious, he kept taking pictures. He looked at the scoreboard, and he, he he wasn't even looking at the game. He was looking at us. So then all of us started to get stirred up to a holy and righteous anger at that point. And we all started telling them, you got to sit down, we can't see. And there's a chorus of people doing it. And he looked at us and he responded, no, I'm good. And I'm like, no, you are not good. You are not good at all. And finally, he sat down, totally oblivious to everyone around him. That's what we call a me monster. You ever heard of a me monster before? They're totally oblivious to everyone around them. They're only thinking about themselves. And that is the culture, that is the air we breathe in this society. A society of self. Time Magazine had an article recently that gave cold hard data about the selfishness of our culture. So even the secular world is looking at how selfish we tend to be. 58% more college students scored higher on a narcissism scale in 2009 than in 1982. So our desire to enjoy our inflated view of ourself is growing. 40% believe they should be promoted every two years regardless of their performance. So I think we probably have gotten too many participation awards. It's all about me. So instead of worshiping the Holy Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity of this generation is me, myself, and I. Meanwhile, in our selfish pursuits, we trample on the glory of Christ. The city of Corinth in the Bible was very similar to our culture today. Many went to Corinth to create a name for themselves. It was a port city. There was a lot of commerce. People would go and and seek aristocracy. They would seek to be rich. And many of them were able to do that. 
because it was a city of a lot of upward mobility. And the problem is the church in Corinth took in too much of Corinth. So the church that was supposed to stand out as salt and light in a dying, me-focused culture actually allowed that selfishness, that self-preoccupation to drive how they did church together. One of the ways we saw this in that church, well, if you read through Corinthians, you could just see that they're a mess, right? You have people, you have believers who are suing each other. You have sexual immorality. You have believers who don't like Paul because he's not good-looking enough. He's not a good speaker. He, he doesn't have a strong presence about him, and so they'd have these, these famous orators come into the church who were slick, they were cool, they could preach well, and everyone wanted to follow them instead of the apostle. It was all a show. It was all about them. But one of the ways that this manifested itself was in selfish identity seeking. In other words, finding their identity in something other than Christ. Because it was all about your personal reputation, they got into different cliques. And it was all about what clique you were a part of. Ooh, who are you with? Who are you with? Instead of finding their identity in Christ. And this led to jealousy and bitter division. Listen, listen to what Paul says to them. But I, brothers, could not address you as a spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? They were all about their own reputation and their own clique that they were a part of. A wise pastor today warns us that the same thing can happen in our churches today. When churches divide for carnal reasons, they identify themselves with something other than Christ. They become the church of modern music, or the church of this pastor, or the church of the homeschoolers, or the church of the Democrats, or the church of the blue carpet, or green carpet. As soon as this happens, they're no longer the church of Jesus Christ. They are no longer the church of Jesus Christ. When people come into Jubilee, do they say, wow, Christ is what drives this place? Or do they say, wow, they're all about outreach, or wow, they're all about homeschooling, or wow, Christ should be preeminent in what people receive. Now, in 1 Corinthians 12, the problem was spiritual gifts. The issue was spiritual gifts. Some members saw that the gifts and passions and ministries that they had were more important than the gifts, ministries, and passions that other people had. It all came back to self and to pride. So this morning, when we look at 1 Corinthians 12, 
God's aim for us is that we would become a healthy church with healthy church members, not a church of me monsters. All of us are wired to be me monsters. This church is about me and not about the good of the whole. So the main point of the sermon that we'll see, if you're taking notes, is God has graciously given each member of the church a unique spirit-empowered ability to serve others for the unity of the body and the glory of Jesus. I'll say that again. God has graciously given each member of the church a unique spirit-empowered ability to serve others for the unity of the body and the glory of Jesus. Well, let's, let's jump into the text. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. Here we learn that God, God gives each one of us a spiritual gift or spiritual gifts to show the glory of Jesus and not to draw attention to ourselves. He gives each one of us, each one of us, a spiritual gift or spiritual gifts to show off the glory of Jesus and not to draw attention to ourselves. Listen verses 1 through 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now what's going on here? What's happening is Paul needed to help the Corinthians understand what a truly spiritual experience was. What they were doing is taking their cultural past in paganism when they would go to the local temple and they would see different priests having these huge charismatic emotional experiences cutting themselves. They would see that as spiritual. And so they, they brought those values into the church. So any spiritual gift that was more charismatic, more out there, more ecstatic, that was, that was what was revered in the church. So basically, they were importing the values of the culture into the way they did church. So Paul comes along and says, the way you know that something is truly pleasing to God is not the experience itself, but it's, is it Christ exalting? Do you see that there in verse 3? No one in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. In other words, if the Holy Spirit is at work in you, if the Holy Spirit is using you in this church, it will not draw attention to yourself. It will draw attention to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's how you know that your ministry, your gifting, your service in the church is pleasing to God. Not by all the bells and whistles and how cool it looks, but is it exalting Jesus Christ? We tend to do that today, don't we? You think about the example of people who are outgoing, people who have a personality that is really relational. Those are the type of people that our culture honors and esteems, not the quiet, awkward, stay-keep-to-themselves type people. So, what we do in the church is we assume that if someone is more outgoing and more relational 
and they're always talking about Jesus, oh, they must be the really spiritual ones. Whereas the quiet ones, the behind-the-scene ones, they're just kind of weird. They're, they're not really needed in this body. And when we do that, we're importing the culture of America into the church. And we have to guard against that. God has graciously given each member of the church, each member, a unique spirit-empowered ability to serve others for the unity of the body and the glory of Jesus. So in verses three, 1 through 3, we see God gives us gifts not to show off, but to show Jesus is amazing, to show Jesus is good. Let's look at verses 4 through 11. Verses 4 through 11. What these verses will teach us is that God graciously works through each and every member in very different ways. Very different ways. God graciously works through each and every member of this body called Jubilee in very different ways. And those differences are by design. Those differences are by design. Paul says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given, through the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom. And to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. You'll notice in verses 4 through 6 that every person of the Trinity is mentioned. Do you see that? Look in verse 4. You have the Holy Spirit. Look in verse 5. You have Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 6, you see God, God the Father. Now, why is Paul mentioning every person of the Holy Spirit in this passage? I think it's because of two things. One is, when we look at the, the divine trinity, we see a diversity, right? There's not one person, there's three. Three different persons in the trinity. And that diversity is reflected in the diversity of gifts that God has given to the church. So it's easy to come into a church and say, if we're all just this way, it would be a healthy church. And Paul is saying, no, look Look at the Trinity. You have three divine persons who are different and have different roles. Now, different in our culture is often unjust. If you don't give me the same role as that person, that's not right. Whereas Paul pushes against that and says, no, diversity is good. And that's why God has made 
a diversity in the church to reflect him. And yet, that diversity doesn't mean we all go in different directions because, man, we're just so different. Peter's a Twins fan. Lou's a Yankees fan. Different churches. No. God calls us to be unified within that diversity. He calls us to be unified in that diversity. So, the unity of the Trinity should be reflected in the unity of the body, just like the diversity of the Trinity should be reflected in the diversity that we honor in one another for being so different. The next thing to notice is the word gift. Now, there are varieties of gifts. What's interesting is that word gift is a different Greek word than the word for gift in verse 1. You see there in verse 1, there's also the term gift. In verse 1, it's, it's the Greek term pneumatikos, which means spiritual things. Here, it's the Greek word charisma. Charisma. Now, why in the world would Paul change the word only a couple verses later? The reason is, is because Paul knows he has to remind the Corinthians that gifts are gifts of grace. Charisma, the Greek word Charisma means gift of grace. So he is reminding them that the gifts you have, the reason you could preach, the reason you have a gift for intercession and prayer, the reason you have a gift of, an, of evangelism is not because of how good you are, but it is a gift of grace. And that humbles us, doesn't it? When we remember that what we have and what we can offer to the church is simply by grace, it's really hard to take pride in it. It's really hard to want to show the rest of the body, look at how good I am at this. And so it humbles us to realize that everything we have is of grace. Paul says elsewhere, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? But there's another reason that Paul uses this word charisma. It is a very broad term that talks, about, that talks about a multiplicity of ways that God works in his church. So, in other words, if you go to 1 Corinthians 7, it's that same word, gift, when talking about singleness in marriage. Now, who would ever think about singleness and marriage being spiritual gifts? Well, according to the Bible, they are. And if you really study spiritual gifts in Scripture you recognize that it's not just a group of 15 gifts only, and then beyond that, God doesn't really do a whole lot. What you realize is that any time that the Holy Spirit is empowering you in a certain season of life with contentment to serve the body, that is a spiritual gift. That is a charisma. And we need to recognize that. Paul also broadens our idea of spiritual gifts in the, in the word service. Look at that in verse 5. And there are varieties of service. You know what that term for service is? Diakonia, which sounds like what? Deacon. And what does that word mean? It means waiting on tables, civil service, collection for the poor. All those are services that God empowers us to do in the church. So when God looks at Jubilee this morning... He doesn't say, oh, Toph is preaching. That's the spiritual gift. But, you know, the Nixes, they just got the donuts and coffee ready. That just has to do with your stomach. That's not spiritual. No. That's exactly what 
God is helping us understand is not true. The same, same is true in the word activities there. There are varieties of activities, any way in which the divine power is applied. Any way in which the divine power is applied. So what's the point? The point Paul is trying to make is God graciously works in so many different ways through so many different types of people that we shouldn't start to judge one another for not being like us, for not being passionate about the same things as us, as not having the same Christian walk that we have. That's why he lists so many gifts in this one chapter. He says there's a gift of wisdom and knowledge to another, faith and gifts of healing to another, the working of miracles to another, prophecy to another, distinguishing between gifts or spirits and to another, different tongues and their interpretation. You could kind of hear the cadence to another, another, another. He's trying to make the point, look, not everyone's like you. And that's by design. And that is good for the body. In fact, no spiritual gift listing in Scripture is meant to be exhaustive. So it's not like you look at those, those lists and say, shoot, I don't see myself on that. That's just, it's just a small portion of what God is doing. Now, the reason this is so important for the Corinthians and the reason why it's so important for us today is all of us are tempted to have a very narrow idealistic vision for what the church should look like. And usually, it's in the image of us and how we're wired. We're all tempted to have a very narrow, idealistic vision for what the church should be. And part of that is because when God gives us different gifts in the body, he also gives us an accompanying passion and desire to use that gift. And so we're more sensitive to when it's not happening in the church. So if I have a gift for intercession, I'm going to look at the church and say, why don't we intercede more? Or if I have the gift of evangelism and God's given me a passion for that, we're going to look around and say, man, don't we care about the lost? And that can be good because we could stir each other up in these different areas, but the, reason, the time it becomes a problem is when we look at other people and we assume they're not obeying God because they're not walking in the gifting and passion that God has given me. So, can you imagine someone with the gift of healing say, you know what, people don't give a rip about healing in this church. Look at all the sick people, and they're off doing Bible studies. They just care about the Word of God. Or you could think about a teacher, a gift of teaching. Don't we care about doctrine in this church? Why don't we have more classes? Or someone with the gift of mercy says, well... Apparently, this church isn't woke because we don't give a rip about the poor and the oppressed. We all tend to take our passions and desires and giftings, which are very good, because of the insidiousness of pride that wraps around it, they, became, they become occasions for division and judging one another instead of stirring each other up to love and good deeds. I'm a very guilty party in doing this. When I first came to Jubilee, God was gifting me in that season to really want to pursue inner city youth. And so I was the director of, the, of what used to be called the Say Yes Center. And <clears throat> because it was a gifting, God gave me both grace to do it 
and a passion for it. And so I didn't really always think I was doing this, but really in my heart I was thinking, man, you could do other good, cute things in the church, but if you really want to be obedient to Jesus, you've got to mentor an inner city youth. That's what following Jesus really means. And I walked in pride. It created division. Because we tend to look at the things that God is calling us to pour into and say, aha, that's the sanctified way that this church should be. And we draw away from the body because it's not more like us. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about the church. Just a warning, when you read Dietrich Bonhoeffer, his books are short, but man, they punch you in the face. They are like super intense. So he lived in a commune with different pastors for a while and really was pursuing Christian community. And his main driving thought about the church is that it is a divine, not an ideal reality. So in other words, Jubilee is created by God, and we need to recognize that and submit to that reality and not, not lapse into thinking that, well, because Jubilee's not ideal, it's not really a church I should pour into or be a part of. This, this is what he says. God hates visionary dreaming, ideals of what the church ought to be. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of what community and what the church should look like demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters a community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and then finally the despairing accuser of himself. What Bonhoeffer is saying is we all bring an idealistic picture to the church, and we don't always use it as a way to stir others up in love. We use it as a weapon to say, man, this church is lame. I'm going to go to a different church. Or, man, if this church was just more like this, and instead of unity and love and joy, it creates division. And we're all tempted to do that. So, I've had to think through myself as a pastor, what are ideals of Jubilee that I think ought to be a reality that are give it, getting in the way of me actually serving the church? So one could be ethnic diversity. We want more ethnic diversity in this church, but it's not presently that big of a reality. So I could do one of two things. I could say, well, it's not up to my ideal, so I'm out of here. Or I could think about how can I serve the church and help bring about more ethnic diversity. Or you could think, man, this church just doesn't do whatever. You, you, could, you could put whatever you want. And the point here is the attitude, is our attitude often falls into pride. And we, we take a posture of, I'm going to judge the church and throw stones and kind of 
get away from the church instead of jumping in to serve the church. So, what we see in this passage is God has graciously given each member of the church a unique spirit-empowered ability to serve others for the unity of the body and the glory of Jesus. Now, one clarification. I'm not saying, this text isn't saying that we shouldn't be passionate about things. It's not saying that we shouldn't offer healthy critique of the church. <clears throat> All that is, is needed. And I need people in my life who are different than me. Otherwise, I'm just going to be blind to my own weaknesses. But we've all been around people who their differences are life-giving because they stir us up to want to grow in ways that they're passionate about. And we've all been around people who are different than us. And we kind of leave feeling like, boy, I guess I'm somewhat of a Christian, maybe. So it's heart attitude. It's our heart attitude that matters most. For instance, uh, Dave O'Neill and I are very different in ways. John Erickson and I are very different in ways. I'm, I tend to be very organized and structured, and I just love structure. And Dave O'Neill loves organic. You know, he, do, he doesn't want it too programmatic. Now, we could look at that in two ways, like, well, why don't you go plan an organic church, and I'll do a program, you know, with, with real nice boxes over everything, that type of church. And the Bible is saying we would be very anemic Christians if we did that. Because I have needed Dave to remind me over and over again, Toph, it's not about getting the org chart just perfect. And that's not going to make the, the church work just right. So we need each other. But there's a way to encourage each other that builds up. And there's a way that says, you know what? Why don't you just go do your organic thing and I'll go do my plan thing. That's what Scripture is teaching us not to do. Let's finish by looking at verses 12 through 31. Verses 12 through 31. And here we see God's goal for our differences is serving one another for the unified health of the body. Verses 12 through 31. God's goal for our differences is serving one another for the unified health of the body. Paul says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were, wait, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. 
And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various gifts of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. One of the things we see here is that the church is meant to be mutually dependent like parts of the body serving the health of the whole body. So when we judge one another and say, you know what, you're doing more Bible studies, all that academic trash, we don't need that, or why are you always thinking about reaching out when we're not growing enough as believers together? When we do that, it would be like my liver saying to my heart, all you're doing is pumping, pumping, pumping. Why do you always have to pump, 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 pump? I don't need you. Well, that would be pretty stupid, right? But we do the same thing when we cast stones at each other for being different than we are. Sometimes we believe that we ourselves are not a significant part of the body. You see that in verse 15? The foot says, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. And so I sometimes say, man, I can't preach like Lou. I can't be in this body. I'm not a strong leader like John Erickson. I'm too wimpy. I can't counsel like Dan Porch. I'm not as zealous as Jess about the oppressed. I shouldn't be here. I'm not passionate about youth outreach like Frank. What part do I play in this body? We all tend to look at our own weaknesses. And so we assume that we're not a part of the body. But in God's eyes, does does God say, oh, yeah, you aren't like them. I guess you're not a part of the body. No. That doesn't, for any minute, make us not needed in this body. Everyone is needed. Sometimes we believe others are not a significant part of the body. You see that in verse 21? The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. They aren't reformed or Calvinistic enough. They're not charismatic enough. They're kind of awkward and, and impersonal. They're too young. They're too old. They're too married. They're too single. I can't be in an MLG with them. They don't do inner city ministry with cultural competence. They're too unstructured and too spontaneous. They're too type A and organized. We make all these reasons up for why a person isn't needed in the body. And God says, that's hogwash. Because I designed you exactly how you are. Because, Toph, you need a Dave O'Neill to remind you that Life isn't about getting everything in the right box. And that's when there's a beautiful unity within diversity. All of our different spiritual gifts are by design to help each other become more like Jesus. So with that in mind, what do friendships look like for you in this church? Do you have friends who have a different educational background for you than you? 
do you have friends and do you do life with people who have a different personality type than you? Do you have friendships where they have a different gifting, a gift of evangelism, a gift of walking with people in discipleship? God is meant for us to stir each other up with the different giftings that we have. One wonderful example is Eric Shavesty came up to me a few years ago, and if you know Eric, he is super, super, super gifted at walking with people in discipleship, and it's been so encouraging to me. And he came up to me and said, Toph, will you disciple me in reading and studying the Word, which I was happy to do. And because of that, what happened is I'm sharpened and I'm encouraged by his ability to walk with people, and then I can share a gifting I have in studying the Word. That's how it's meant to work. It's not meant to be like, all right, Eric, you go do your discipleship. I'm going to go study the Word. That's not how it's supposed to work. Do you have friendships and do life with people who are zealous about something different than you? So in your MLG, if there are people who are really excited about something that you're not excited about, that's good because it can help you grow your understanding of what obedience to God might look like. And God means for you to stir each other up. Do you have, do you have friends who have a different er- emphasis in parenting? Now, I did not know the sensitivity to issues of parenting in, until I became a parent. There's books that say you should do this. There's books that say you should do that. And man, it can be a hornet's nest unless we allow the Spirit of God to help us recognize, you know what? Their style of parenting looks different than mine, and that's a gift from God to me to help me realize that maybe I'm too much this way. But we tend to, we tend to walk away and distance ourselves from differences. And God's saying, don't do that. That's my gift to you. So don't just hang out with all ears or all eyes or all feet in the body. Now, similarities are gifts too. I'm not saying that, you know... Part of why Jason Kelcott and I are such good friends is we love to be silly together. We just love being silly. And so there are gifts of, be, of similarity that are gifts also. The problem is we tend to worship similarities, and it makes us not want to be around people who are different than us. In verse 31, it says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, how can Paul say that when he's just labored so hard to show us that no gift is better than another gift. And then in verse 31, he says, desire the higher gifts. Well, if you go to chapter 14, you recognize what Paul is saying is that the higher gifts are those that edify other people, that serve other people. It's not like, well, preaching's cool. Nursery work is not. That's not what he's saying. He's saying is, is nursery work serving this church right now? And as a parent, I would say, yes, (laughs) yes. Then that is a higher gift in this church. And so if I am a self-preoccupied preacher who's really trying to make a name for myself, and you have a single guy who says, I stink at working with kids, and the Holy Spirit gives him a gift to say, you know what, even though I stink with working with kids, I'm happy to go help because that's a need. That is the higher spiritual gift. That's the one the Spirit of God is at work in, not the one who could just look really good in his presentation. 
Serving out of your comfort zone will expose weaknesses in ways that will cause you to come before the Lord in desperate need of help. So don't get quarantined into, I'm not gifted in that. No, I'm not gifted in that. No, I'm not really gifted in that. I'm only gifted in that, so I'm not going to do anything until the church starts doing this. It's good to serve in ways that you think you really stink at because you're really dependent on the Lord, and that's a gift of the Holy Spirit. So, brothers and sisters, I end with this encouragement. I am a pastor, and every year it's so debilitating to see how selfish I am. And this text just wrecked me because it showed me how often I've been selfish. And I, I ask your apologies for ways I've done that. But I'm reminded, I'm reminded that the whole purpose Jesus came was to set me free from that. So we don't have to be enslaved to the me, 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 me culture. We're drinking it in every day, but listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So if you leave this morning thinking, I just can't change. I know I'm not supposed to be selfish, but I just wake up thinking about me. And then at lunch, I think about me. And then at dinner, I think I'll think about me. Realize that Jesus died to put that to death. So you have the power to defeat that in Christ's name. And he is working for that. So let's help us. Let's help one another do that. And remember God has graciously given each member of the church a unique spirit-empowered ability to serve others for the unity of the body and the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would enable us to humbly serve one another. Father, forgive me when I have not served others, but have instead tried to make a name for myself. Would you forgive me for that? And would you help us, Father, as a body, to put that to death? In Christ's name, amen.